Hi, I'm John Stevens. This is Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy. This is Pod Have Mercy. Yeah, you know, I, I thought about that when we were, we were driving back from Georgia on Monday. And it just, we were listening to the, uh, the closing arguments from the trial. I haven't really watched a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, check in, but listen to the closing arguments and to hear them playing the, the video clips over and over again. And I, you know, I thought to myself, I mean, that's even something I don't want to listen to over and over again. And I can't imagine for certain segments of our society. And, you know, that's, that's the thing to me that is really difficult when our, our, our society is, is so sectarian, so binary, separated, polarized about things. It's like, it's like every time something happens on one side or the other, it's like that becomes the worst thing in the world ever, right? So a Congress person makes a statement and then the other side has to say, this is the worst thing ever when, you know, their people were saying the same things right. a month or so ago. And it's just, you know, so I'm, I'm really shocked that there's hypocrisy among politicians. <laughs> you know, that, that was really, that was really, wow. I was really disappointed. Wow. Oh, and, and I kind of thought there that wouldn't exist, but I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> I think the when you think about mentalization, you think about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Yeah. This is what we don't do anymore. No. There's no empathy uh, in extremes. It's only Ooh. selfish, self-centeredness. It's only yeah. my ideology, my thing, my way, my my yard, my, <laughs> my, my space, my thought, my, and don't ever put yourself in the shoes of another. Yeah. And that lack of humility and lack of empathy is just killing us. Yeah. Yeah. I think. It, it seems to be also the call of the gospel that those of us that have kind of credentials and privilege actually put ourselves in the shoes of those that don't. That seems to be the movement. Right, there seems to be the movement that that's where the system shifts. Then and we go, oh, this this is my brother and sister, right? And to to understand, I I, I realize much more now, disempeopled disempeopled disempowered people react um, um, at times violently because that's the only thing at sometimes that. Um, the system listens to or gets a reaction or people that are oppressed for so long. You know, there is this sense of which that Psalms, how long, O Lord, how long, right? Um, and so I, I think the church is situated in a place to move in the place of Jesus, that self-emptying way, you know? Yeah. I don't know. <clears throat> it's just, as I, as I listen to, as I listen to the closing arguments in the trial, I realize first that, you know, life is not uh, binary. It, uh, life is not black and white. And, and so many people want it to be black and white. Life is lived in the gray. I mean, and, and I know 
you, you have to engage in a longer conversation with people because they get very offended by that. It's like, oh, there's right and wrong. Oh, no, there is right and wrong. There is truth. There is evil in the world. We, we know this to be the case. But what you realize is, though, that you hear diversions, all right, from the prosecution and then from the defense. And you think to yourself, okay, um, as I'm listening to it again, and people may disagree with me on this, I'm listening to this defense attorney talk about these reasonable actions of this officer all the way leading up, right, until these final moments. And I'm listening and I'm, I'm trying to understand and I'm saying, I don't think he was unreasonable, uh, but there was a point where he was. There was a point where a line was crossed um, because another person's life was at stake. Another person's life was on the line. And that is, um, you know, I'm, I, as we record this, the, uh, the jury on the Derek Chauvin, you know, George Floyd trial, they're out and they're meeting and they have not um, finished yet. But I think that I think the whole country is a little on edge. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. For, for this, because I don't know <clears throat> what will happen. Um, you know, it's, and it's difficult because I know that, um, as, as I've heard over and over that this is a, a trial about one instance, but it, um, for many people is an instance that is a symbol for a larger, um, a larger wound, um, a generational wound, uh, um, an experiential wound. That Generational. Made, yeah. Generations. Yeah. Old. Yeah. I mean. And this is the other thing in, in talking to some people who don't understand, you know, they, they try to say, well, George Floyd was not a good guy. Why is he, <laughs> why is he lifted up or painted? And I try to explain, it's like, look, look, there's an individual and then there's something that individual represents that's greater than that yeah. person. But, but that's always also the way that um, you disempower an argument by pay, taking a very small moral um, argument and placing it within a large context. Well, th he was doing this X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And that gets us out of having to look at a larger system of oppression or a larger system of, um, of violence or a larger system of the way that people um, are struggling uh, without hope. Right, and so if I can make a very small moral argument and discount the incredible sy systemic issue, um, there seems to be a not just a heart heartlessness about that, but also seems to be a willful ignorance. Well, again, it goes back to a lack of understanding yeah. of yeah of that yeah yeah. First off, no no person is perfect, <laughs> uh, and George Floyd wasn't perfect by any stretch, but. You know, you, you look at this and I just can't help but think that he should not have lost his life. No. You know, whatever you say, I mean, yeah, the actions have consequences, you know, but it's just, it, there's an inequity where, you know, he, he passes a fake $20 bill and yet, you know, then you have some millionaire who illegally, you know, short something. counts. <laughs> Uh, some property is way more than or less than it is mm -hmm. so they don't have to pay taxes and then they they have some plea deal to where they just say oh I'll just pay pennies on the dollar and you know I'm like so I'm gonna fake $20 bill and we're talking about tens of millions right the grand scheme of things yeah. though there's a there's a, a I don't know it's just a discrepancy in 
in things. Yeah. The mil- the multimillionaire is not having the police come <laughs> put them down on the ground neck and on the knee. Yeah, but it's but it's a much yeah. different. I mean, it's 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 millions and millions of dollars, and yeah. it's illegal. But that's yeah. dealt with in a yeah. completely different way. This is where I think that you continue to like in the in Sundays um, to remind us that what should be shaping our imagination is the gospel of Jesus, is the life of Jesus in the world, is what Jesus calls us to in the world. Because if that doesn't shape us, um, then we will be shaped by cultural influences that really um, are invested, and I'm saying this to myself, they're invested in my own self-preservation. That, that the gospel always call, calls us out of that self-preservation to surrender, mm. um, to empathy, and to the common good. Um, um, and that's where, you know, that's where I think the resurrection uh, lies and calls us to. Yeah, well, well you know, you, you, you wrote some good stuff, and you've preached the last two weeks we've been talking about, you know, the way to love. I'm thinking mm. about after the resurrection, yeah. the kind of the kind of things that Jesus was teaching, you know, the disciples, um, you know, this, this is your stuff that you, you did and, and how the disciples were being challenged with a new way of seeing and acting at every turn yeah. and that everything is different now, but also everything is about to change at that time between Easter and Pentecost, you know, is, is a really interesting yeah. time. Yeah. And I've never looked at it like this. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time I've looked at, I've kind of just jumped from Easter to Pentecost. I didn't realize, yeah. you know, oh, there's some, there's some stuff that happens in between that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the, um, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't know. I think, it, you know, he's, he's talking a lot about, talking a lot about community and talking a lot about, you know, giving them a glimpse of the, the Holy Spirit, uh, how they're going to live in this, this world as they are without him physically with them. Right. Yet he's still going to be with them. Right. Um, you talk a lot too about co- the community focus, especially yeah. with Paul, the body. Yeah. And that's just something that I um, echo over and over again is this yeah. whole concept of unity. Yeah. And uh, yeah. there are people that want to just like poo poo unity now. <laughs> like they said, Oh, you're making that into an idol. You know, unity is the God. You're making unity into a God. And you're saying unity is more important than polity. That's what the argument is. And what I'm going to say is unity uh, is yeah. more important than yeah. polity. <laughs> you, Duh. I mean, <laughs> of course unity is more important than polity. Please. Polity? I mean, you're like, going to die for an idea? The rules of <laughs> operating idea. a church that, that human beings have constructed, that that's more important. Uh, I, I mean... I just think people have lost it. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, I got to be careful. I don't want to cuss on the podcast. My mother, <laughs> Can we bleep my mother and my wife both every time. And I'm like even nice. I'm like rated G, you know, PG 13 on the podcast. But I'm like, I, I mean, my grandmother used to say people have lost their damn minds. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just, people don't, we don't even see the world. People don't even see their own hypocrisy. Yeah. They don't, they don't, they don't even listen to the words. They believe them. They're saying things and they believe it with all of their hearts and yeah. they believe it's gospel truth. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I wish I could take you out of your body, yeah. put you over here and let you watch yourself talk. I mean, I wish you could do that because <laughs> mm. I, I can't tell me that they wouldn't go, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> ooh. Hey, pump Ooh. the brakes there, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, that's no bueno. Yeah, yeah. That's no bueno. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you think the, that, that word is called inventory, right? That we we have a serious lack 
and our ability within even our own faith to take inventory of our lives, to look, to self-reflect on our lives. Mm. And I think that's where, that's when we see ourselves in those places um, and in the, in those kind of shallow, shallow into the pool places, we go, Oh, that's not who I want to be. Or how did I become that? We can, we can begin to reflect. Right. Mm. But, um, I think that there's so little space for self-reflection and for inventory in our lives, um, that, um, that it's made us, um, shallow people. Yeah. Well, you know, the, uh, what we're doing here, you know, at Chapelwood is we actually, we, we don't really go through the lectionary a lot. I've noticed that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you came from a church that was like, yeah, that's the lectionary it. is that, more important than unity. Than, than, than polity for sure. <laughs> and the polity and everything. But <clears throat> no, but you know, it was really refreshing to come back to this ancient yeah. outline. Yeah. Well, it's not ancient, but it's been around for a long time. Uh, outline of how the the, the church uh, has gone through from Easter to Pentecost and what these texts are. Mm. And you've preached the last two week two weeks on these texts. I've got one coming up, the Good Shepherd mm. text from John, yeah. where you know Jesus says, "I am the Good Shepherd." And what we find, he, you know, in this in this text is the Good Shepherd is one who is willing to lay his life down for his sheep. Mm. The Good Shepherd knows his sheep and his sheep know him and the good shepherd is committed to bringing into the flock other sheep that are not a part of this sheep pen if you will yeah. which always intrigues me that passage of scripture yeah. and, and exactly as it's wrestled through the centuries of what it means but these passages you you made this note where you said you know this community when we think about the kind of community Jesus is attempting to get his disciples to see in this Easter to Pentecost, these texts from the lectionary, what we find is that in order for this to happen, you're going to need God's peace, the spirit, mm. deep love for one another, yeah. a good, the good shepherd, need to main, uh, remain connected to the vine, not to be controlled by the fear of death, but by a love that is beyond death. Mm. And I think um, this good shepherd, you know, we forget uh, yeah. that... He left the 99 for the one. And that's not, again, you know, that's not what we see in our culture. I think the, mm. the thing is the church comes out of the pandemic is that we are going to have to be even, I see the church really moving in, 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 in diverging directions. Yes. Churches. Um, there's, on the one hand, I think there are churches that are like doubling down with the old, the old way. We're back. <laughs> yeah, we're back. We're back. They're back. Coming this summer. This summer, summer, this summer. This summer. Church is back. 2021. <laughs> Baptists, <laughs> Methodists, Presbyterian. They're back. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> but I mean, I, I think they, they want to, you know, it's just like, oh, no, I'm doubling down. I'm, I'm going to be... Mm just more we we need more we need harder we need firmer we mean more dog me we need to get back to the yeah. you know which look i'm not i'm not discounting that but i'm just thinking when i read the gospel and i th see what jesus is teaching and how yes. he's looking yeah. in these texts and how he's operating yeah. it's like i never hear that sense or spirit from jesus no 
No. It's almost like I shared a video with the other day of a pastor. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, you know, who was being moved or something like that. And I just, all I could think of, first off, I felt for the pastor in the church. We talked about that. I'm like, I don't know this is a good thing that the bishop would move this person necessarily. But what struck me was just the tone. Yeah. You know, the tone, it's just, there's so much anger and defiance and just, and I, I don't, it's like, I don't know. I think the other diverging path in Christianity are people who are going to say, no, we're going to, we're going to take our shoes off and wash each other's feet. And we're going to, we're going to lay our lives down for the sheep. And we're going to, there's a sense of, of humility. And when people say, well, they're just walking over us and they're just, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, no, no, they are. Hey, so many Christians want to fight, 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 fight. Because we're losing, we're losing our society. I'm like, dude, this ain't our society. <laughs> no. I don't, I don't know what planet you're on, but we are in the world, not of the world. And and these powers and principalities will come and go. And they have for two thousand years that Christians have been around. Yeah, and we've been Christian in empires and in democracies and in fascist regimes and in autocrat autocracies yes. and communist countries and you know tribal. I mean, we've we've been people of faith under a lot of different ways that society has ordered. Yeah. Um, and, and most historians, and it doesn't mean I don't care about right. our country, but I'm just saying it's, it's not, it's not for us the end of all things. Right. Well, and, and most theologians and historians will say that Christians are the best in a sense, uh, you know, that sense of best being like the most authentic grounded, giving when they are not centered in society as the control makers, right? But when we are a little more scrappy, we're having Mm -hmm. to be a little more scrappy. We're having to redefine what our mission and vision is. Is it about buildings and maintenance or is it about the mission of God in the world that uses those things in order to accomplish that, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that some of what I've seen, at least our local church, the chapel would go through or the pandemic is, is that, Maybe it's not a recalibration, but a, a, oh yeah, this is our mission. We're in the world. We're loving the world. We've done that throughout the um, the um, the pandemic with um, the food bank or with the TRT or with other places that people are just showing up and serving. We're going to keep doing that, and we're going to double down there. We're, we're going to double down there, and we're going to double down in teaching a deep, abiding, yes. mature faith to our children and to our grandchildren yeah. and to one another because the faith uh, there the Christianity there's a lot of good Christianity in our country and there's a lot of bad Christianity in our country there's a lot of Christianity that now is so mingled with secularism and politics and yeah. they've played this dance to where now you don't know what's theology and ideology yeah, right um, it's like the 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 saying I've used that I saw somewhere and I don't remember who it was from, but it's like you, you are, you are seeing people leaving their churches because of their political parties, but you're not seeing anyone leave Leave their their political political parties because of their churches. And that shows a priority disconnect for Christians. Yeah. And you know, so I, I look at it and say, um, the churches are going to choose a, a path of what kind of, um, what kind of perfect community or not perfect community, but what kind of community will we be? 
Yeah. Right. Um, so I, I, for me, I think about what we're seeing now is, yeah, there's a lot of high tech. We do this podcast. We didn't do that before. Yeah. It's on YouTube and video and we do all these things, but this high touch where you've got this class on Sunday mornings where families come together, mm. you know, the adults bring their teenagers and their elementary school kids and they're sitting in the room together at the same time yeah. while you're teaching. Yeah. Uh, when so I was in there several, you know, weeks back or, yeah. and I'm like, I'm looking around, I'm going, this is hmm. like this intergenerational Sunday school model that we yeah. talked about like 35 years yeah. ago that they were, they thought, oh, this sounds we're really cool, school. but we can't do it. You know, it was designed for small churches that didn't have in yeah. a lot of kids or a lot of youth right. said, hey, well, let's put the old folks in the room with the children and the teenagers. And, yeah. you know, and it works in a small church. And here we are a big church. And it's like, no, it, it works now because here's the thing. People are leaving churches in droves. And the church has traditionally been in our society the place where morality is taught to children, where ethics are taught to families and children. And so for me, it's like all of these people who are so concerned about what's happening in the secular aspect of our country, you know, are so fired up and yet they're just, they, they want to distort the church or they want to manipulate the church or they want to control the church. I'm like, no, no, no. You have to let the church be the church. You have to let the church teach scripture. You have to let the church teach the ways of Jesus. All right. You don't get to come and say the church has to teach A, B, and C, D in the way I want. That's not moral education. That's no. not faith education. That's not ethic education. Our morality comes from our faith. It comes from just what we talked about. The, the modeling of Jesus willing to lay his life down for the sheep um, who says there are sheep not of this right. fold or of this yeah. sheep pen yeah. that I will shepherd them as well. That's right. That's and right. that's not, you know, so these, these are words of Jesus, by the way, I'm just saying. So if you want to like email me, I'm sorry, but it's just Jesus. It's like, that's the problem. Yeah. It's like, I, you know, you get people who get upset about things and I'm like, this is the Bible. Right. I was uh, listening or reading an article recently that said really the new religion of America is being shaped much more by our political ideologies than anything else. Um, and that so much of the church's ideology has been just like like shaped and taken over by that. And so that, like you're saying, then we end up leaving churches to go to places where people have the same ideology. Um, there's something particular about the Church of Jesus, I think, that can sustain a multiplicity of opinions, but one mission to love, right? Mm -hmm. I may have a different opinion about human sexuality than another person does. That should be no reason that the church splits and should be every reason that we continue on in the mission of God in the world. Um, I just, I think that we can hold a larger tent of love where we don't have to agree with everything, but we can we can come to the altar and receive the broken body of Jesus and recognize that as a place that I belong in, that the entire planet belongs, and we can move from that place together. Yeah, and this is like within the Methodist church, you know, you have, um, well, they self-define themselves as traditionalists. I'm a traditionalist. I mean... We've, yeah. we've talked about this yeah. before on the podcast. Um, I'm a traditionalist. I, I'm orthodox. 
I'm evangelical. And yet there's a certain segment that have claimed these terms and defined these terms. And the reason they have is because they did realize, you know, this whole argument on splitting the church and it happened in the Presbyterian church and it's happened in some other denominations, Episcopalian church, is it was just over this one issue of human sexuality, of same-sex marriage. That's what it was. We just happened to be kind of last in line dealing with it. Uh, The others have already done their splits and, and everything else. It was just about that. But I think what what people have realized now is that I can't, that can't be the only issue for me. Cause if it is, I don't really look good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, eh, doesn't sound good. Cause so I have to add, so yeah, I have to construct a broader, um, a broader argument about why it is that I can no longer remain United Methodist. Do I hear that being under the umbrella of bull crappery? Of ideas that I, you have so, to do? so this goes back. So this goes back. I bull crap. Are you an expert in that? No. So this goes back though to the very thing we were saying before. Is that all right? I put I put myself in the shoes of another, yeah. and I say I believe, knowing folks on both sides of this issue, that they're very very sincere. Believe everything yeah. that they're saying. It's sure. not they're not pulling wool over anybody's eyes. No. But no. what's happened is they've constructed this thing that now has become reality. And the same thing has happened in political parties. Mm-hmm. But they've constructed this thing where it's, it was just about this one issue. That's what it was about. But now they realize it's like, we got to have it about more. So now it's about orthodoxy, right? Well, it's about some church reads a book by Marcus Borg. Well, that's not orthodox, right? You know, he's Christian, but he doesn't fall under our, our camp of approved reading list, right? Oh, they do contemplative spirituality and do Enneagram and Richard Rohr. Well, that's satanic, right? <laughs> so they're like, so that's not orthodox, right? So then they say, well, and then you go back and you look at 2,000 years of different ways of understanding soteriology, salvation, yes. right? Origin in the second century. This is not new stuff about how people are saved through Jesus. Right. And you have this sort of um, kind of restrict, restrictivist sort of thought. It's like, if you never heard the name of Jesus and claim the name of Jesus and believe in the name of Jesus, you're going to hell. So, I mean... Like the vast majority of people that ever exist on this earth, they're burning in hell right now because they didn't hear about the name of Jesus. And and there's there's a certain type of like glee when I hear people say those things that should not exist in people's voices, <laughs> right. like right as if. But then, but know. what I'm saying is, like for two thousand years, you've had other ways of understanding Absolutely. how people are are saved through Jesus. Yes. But, it, but they may never have heard the name of Jesus. What do we so this do? is not something I'm making up. I'm not just sitting here going, well, that sounds good. I think I'd like that. We're talking about Matthew orthodox Christianity <laughs> within the tent. What makes it orthodox? Because every one of these different positions, whether they're yes. inclusivist or restrictivist or even universalist, you know, that, you know remember those little William Barclay commentaries yes, yes, yes. that everybody reads with the pink yes. and the green and yes. the purple? Yes. And every Baptist and Methodist I know had them on their bookshelf. He was an orthodox. Orthodox universalist. Yeah, yeah. He was a restorationist, like yeah. your origin. Uh, yeah. And everybody was going to, ultimately, everything was going to be restored through Jesus, by the way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's like, people are like, well, that's the devil. <laughs> ah, what you talking about? That's the devil. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, they did excommunicate origin, but they finally come back around and go, you know. Well, he had some stuff maybe we should have been listening to. <laughs> he's like, now now they, they, they put him forward and teach him yeah. in Orthodox and Roman Catholic tradition. And Protestants. And I, I don't know. It's just 
this is what I mean when we want to teach our children a deep, mature, authentic faith that changes a life. Yes. And that allows them to intersect with yeah. people in a world. Because I'm going to tell you, the world is complex. And if all we do is teach our kids to see everything through a black and white lens, it is to their disservice. Yeah. It is to our generations coming after us disservice. Yeah. Because, yeah. And, and they even know culturally. Like the way my kids grew up and understand and view uh, you know, human sexuality, yeah. very different than the way I grew up. Absolutely. I mean, my daughter uh, was, you know, was the, the major of the dance team mm-hmm. and she had um, girls on the dance team that were gay in her high school. I never knew anybody in my high school. Now, it probably was in Columbus, Georgia. <laughs> but probably, I, I, there probably yeah, was. Maybe but Georgia, I mean, I didn't know uh, yeah, if yeah, it, yeah. they didn't tell anybody. You know, we're talking about, you know, and this is just the 80s. So you can imagine e- even before that. Yeah. And it's just like our kids, um, they have thoughts on this. They have not my thing or it is or whatever. I mean, but they just have a different way of viewing yeah. it yeah. Um, than and, and I, I, and I wonder also theologically, there's different ways of holding an orthodox view of scripture and seeing a lot of different issues. And I think that there needs to be, and one of the things I love about Chapelwood is that there is a generosity of that orthodoxy. I, I, I don't know if you told me the story or someone else told me the story about you, like your first couple weeks at Chapelwood, you showed up and there was some Sunday school class that was reading a like a John Piper book. And then the next no, week well, was, it was a John Hagee. Hell. So one class was <laughs> no. teaching John Hagee's Four Blood Moons. And another group, <laughs> the four blood moons. Yeah, that's what they're called. And then there I was another group home. that was reading uh, Marcus Borg. Borg yeah. Well, I had people come in my office and said, you need to tell them to stop reading Marcus Both Borg groups. right now. No, no, <laughs> oh. no one was coming to oh. complain about John Hagee book, right? Um, but but they, but somebody, you know, I had a, a little group that's like, you got to tell them you, 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 you have to basically ban Marcus Borg and John Dominic Croissant and all this. Now, look, I'll just tell you, that's not my theology. Marcus Borga is not my theology, but first off, I, I learned when people come and <laughs> I know you like. Can I, can I say I, I kind of like him, John? <laughs> no, what I'll say is it's not. It's not my theology. Yeah. But um, again, as I've learned through the years, is there are some things that he contributes to the conversation that actually like. He's the one yes. that talks about the difference between resurrection and recitation or, or resuscitation. Yes. And brings this to the table about that, you know, Jesus was resurrected, not just a body that was resuscitated, not like the old dead body that was right. resuscitated. Right. Now, you know, I believe in a physical bodily resurrection, uh, and he believes in resurrection, but not, so there's all these nuance, but it, well, people come to complain about Marcus Borg. And I'm like, have you ever, has you actually read Marcus Borg? <laughs> no, but I've read about him on the internet. I was like, really? You read about him? And they pull up some from, you know, the, the, the biblical guardian, you know, this is the website they get it from the biblical guardian guarding the Bible. I'm like, yeah, you don't really need to guard the Bible. The Bible can do well without you. Done well without and it was that. like some guy's interpretation and where he goes out, you know what? You could take a sermon of mine and just quote, it, you know, misquote it and make me sound horrible. Yeah or quote it correctly and make me sound horrible. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, one of the things on the strand I want to uh, kind of pick up is that idea of, like, at, at Chapwood, being able to teach our kids 
like um, that this God that we talk about actually is alive in Jesus. Like, like Jesus is alive and moving around the world, right? Mm. In 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 what 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 the scripture says, where two or three are gathered, you know, Jesus says, "That's where I'm at." And to if our if our kids could graduate and move into college with an abiding sense that the God of the universe is for them, that um, they are loved beyond reason and imagination, and out of that place they can take the deepest risks of their life and faith. Um, to love a world that is estranged, um, that that's where I want to be. Hmm. That's what we want to teach. That's what we want to instill into our kids and say, go to the world and then come back on break and tell us what you're seeing. Tell us what you're experiencing, right? Um, and that we are in our own context um, loved and taking those kind of risks in our neighborhoods. And, and you look at what Jesus is teaching the disciples yeah. In yeah. these lectionary yeah. texts from Easter to Pentecost, yeah. it's to be this kind of beloved community. That's right. You know, it's not anger. It's not uh, entrenchment. It's not drawing a line in the sand f- over dogma. I mean, no. it's not. No. Um, you no. know, you, you have to go read it again. It's like, it's this community and he's teaching the disciples and he's sending them out. Yes. to model that in yes. the world. Yeah. And he's telling them, I'm the true vine, abide yeah. in me. I'm the good shepherd. Model this. Huh. You know, you you be this kind of loving community that that is willing to lay your life down for your brother and your sister. Yeah. Um, I was know. really struck in reading some of the texts that these are folks that are walking away, like the folks from the Emmaus, they're walking away. You know, all the disciples have kind of given up. They're done with um, with with it. Their, their hearts have been broken, and I'm am amazed over and over that Jesus shows up and brings peace, and then um, gives a mission out of that peace. And part of that mission, or totality of that mission, is to to forgive, just to march around saying, "What you hold and what's holding you has been forgiven," right? Because I've experienced that, right? And that that's what we witness to. We don't mm-hmm. witness to the four blood moons of the eighth sunrise of the whatever. Those we, we can only bear witness to the things that we've experienced, right? So, where are the places that I have been forgiven beyond reason? That's what I bear witness to. Yeah, right? I wonder how much because um, you're talking about people that um, kind of don't want to let go of some of the mm-hmm. old ways of doing church. Yeah, I wonder if that's an older generation that is used to. Uh, less change in their lifetime and as we're getting closer to um, you know 2020 2030 2040 it's almost like exponential change is happening in society but also with tech and I wonder how much it's people in an older generation going like hold on like enough now we're questioning like gender we're questioning right you know the idea of like everything change I think I think the biggest thing someone said it's, it's not that things are changing. It's things are changing at a faster pace than they ever have before. Right. And so, and I think it may have been um, somebody, Todd, Todd, Bol- yeah, Todd Bolsinger. So things are changing yeah. faster than we can process. Yeah. Right. And that's what causes the, the fear of losing your identity. Right. Uh, in, in change management theory, you have to have a certain sense of psychological safety yes. in order for people to change. And right now, 
the learning anxiety That's is really too good. high. Right. Yeah. So survival, everybody fears the change. They see the change. They know the change. They know it's happening. But learning anxiety is when you can say, here's the vision of what it looks like when we live into this new future. And if they can't see That's that, then you're not creating psychological safety and they will not move forward. They just mm. draw a line in the sand. Okay. So this goes back to the, say, the diverging of the churches. Okay. I would say this is rooted in this lack of psychological safety. So you have a certain segment of Christians that are saying, I cannot envision how I live into this. And so part of, uh, into this future, when all these things are changing around us, around sexuality, around culture, around these things, I can't, I can't figure. So I'm just going to draw a line in the sand. I'm not moving anymore. I'm done. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, I'm Paul, you're enough. kicking against the pricks at this yeah. point, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. The kick against the prick. That's a King James <laughs> version you. thing. That was not a bad word. So don't, yeah, I don't want my mom to send me an email on that one. <laughs> Your mom's um, sending you an email, John. You know, the prod, you know, the prod. So the prick was the thing they prodded yeah. the, the yeah. ox with. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, um, you know, now I've lost my train of thoughts because I got... <laughs> But I mean, I think this, psych, this, 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 if you think about it from a cultural perspective in the Christian church and this divergent, I think it really is around this change management. Um, it, it's, this is family systems theory. It's organizational systems theory. And it's like, there's not enough psychological safety. So there's a, there's a certain group that is drawing a line in the sand and they're saying, yes. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to hold this line. Hold the line. <laughs> Hold the line, and that's when you hear the last thing the church ever said, and then right. it disappeared. But when you, but when you do that, all right, you have this militaristic anger, you know, no humility, no. You see, that's where that yeah. spirit comes out right. of. I will not bend. Yeah, I will not bend. You shall not pass. <laughs> right. I mean, seriously, this is like this, and so, but you. This have, is totally going to be my ringtone. I want you to break this down, and I want John. But, but then you have, I think, a creative, uh, you know, a group of Christians who have enough creativity to begin to say, "Look, I know the future is not real clear to me, but it's something that's appealing. It's something we can live into. Yeah, we don't have it to be is something that's going to be really different yeah. and really beautiful. Yeah. And those are the people that are like, okay, I got enough psychological safety where I don't need to like abandon ship, right? I'm going to stay on board. I'm going to figure out how we start turning the trim tab and the tab and the, yeah. and the rudder and all yeah. this to get this thing moving around the way we need to get it. And yeah, I mean, like our denomination is a big bureaucratic bloated piece of crap, you know, and that doesn't function in the world we live in. I get this. That's why a lot of people want to leave too is because they're like, well, you can't fix the, the, the denomination, let's just leave. I'm like, well, that's like now people start to think that way about our country. Right, mm. right, about everything. Which is why you yeah. get people storming the, the Capitol yeah, because yeah. they think, well, you know, the, the country, what happens when people begin to think that the United States of America is this big bloated bureaucracy can't do anything and enough people go, well, we're just gonna. There was a poll I read recently where there's a, there's a, there's a percentage of people in both parties who identify in one of the other parts that believe that there's certain segments should secede from the United States of America and form their own country. Mm. How, how you do that? What are they all going to move to California. Alabama? I mean, <laughs> I think California is one of them. <laughs> well, I mean, what, one side would move to California. The other side would move to a different state. I mean, I, I don't know how that works. You know, we tried that. It was not yeah, it real good well. in our history before. And I, 
I don't know, man. I just think there's so much around this and why when I listen, I'm just hearing that fear and that pain and yes. that like, I can't, so I'm just going to hold what I know. Theologically, you said something that really has sparked my imagination. So if safety is one of the prerequisites for folks being able to move, like out of trauma narratives, that's another thing that's super important for post-trauma growth is that people feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing that Jesus does post-resurrection, the first word he speaks Peace. is what? Peace. Peace. He's creating a community of safety so that they can see the future differently. Right. Without that, he didn't just show up and say, hey, chill. He didn't say chill. It wasn't like take a little, you know, anti-anxiety meds. You're going to be OK. This is not what he's doing. He's not just in temporarily, temporarily fixing something that they feel anxious about. Yeah. When I hear you talk, I realize, oh, this word peace, shalom, fits in this massive context of saying, I'm going to create and establish peace here so that you can grow beyond the trauma and pain and you can see a future that you can't see on your own. And without this safety, without this peace right now, it, it wouldn't work. And that's maybe, maybe that's the role of the church. Now, again, there's going to be, I'm thinking in, you know, particularly in our denomination, these divergent paths. Um, mm. But I think that the one that the, the churches that remain in the United Methodist Church, whether they be traditionalist churches who choose not to do same-sex weddings, yeah. or they choose to be churches that do, and there'll be pastors that choose not to, and there'll be pastors that choose to. I mean, that's that's the beauty of of giving, you know, some some broader flexibility where you can have traditionalists and progressives in the same denomination. This goes to the unity, yes. right? Beyond the, the polity, right? Beyond the dogma. Yeah. Um and and whereas then Jesus remains the center of that. Jesus yeah. remains the center of that. Yeah. And I think we're going to have to find a way to speak peace to people. Yeah. And, and I just really think that the, the work that we have to start doing in our churches is to cast, you know, to speak the peace, to get in the room. The pandemic has really hurt us because we're not able to be in the room with each other. Yeah. And you know as well as I do that when you get disconnected from someone, you lose trust with someone. And I think now on our societies, on steroids, is like there's no trust at yeah, all. Suspicions we, like because like, you know, it would be great. It's like, I, we're going to have a town hall meeting, you know, at Chapelwood to talk about any sorts of issues that are going on, right? Um, to talk about racism, to talk about, um, you know, socioeconomic issues, to talk about whatever, and to get all these divergent people in the room around tables to where you are sitting here and you're a traditionalist and you're sitting yes. across the table from someone <clears throat> who's progressive or someone who's gay and someone who's like, I, I would never be okay with that. And, and you put people across the table and you realize that human conversation happens. Yeah, yeah. And something shifts in that that's, that's unity. Yes. That's where Jesus says, I pray that they may be one. And when you don't have that, it's division. I mean, it's just, I, I don't understand why churches, we've always just in the United States solved our problems mm -hmm. by division. Yeah, yeah. Why do you have 91 drafts in your email folder? Are those all the emails that like when somebody sends you something and you reply, then this is you Jeff's. type it out? Yeah, this is Jeff's. I'm talking his, his emails up on the screen. I don't have anybody to screen my uh, emails. So basically, like so, so basically <laughs> you type, the, it's like they teach you, you type it out and then you don't send it. 
So I want to read those no ninety-one no email drafts. I, I don't know what's in there. I'm not about. <laughs> there are things that you type. I'm not about to click just on. Just pick it. out. Just pick out one, Jeff. If I click on it, you're going to see all of them. Oh. It might be a lot of profanity. So uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hey, the last thing I wanted, uh, you know, mm. just touch on because, again, we we talked about how, um, you know, we we talked about the Derek Chauvin trial and. And that may happen and come up. I think there's, when we talk about talking past each other, the one thing I hear when I uh, um, hear certain groups of people talking about is it has to do with, I'll just name it, I'm naming it, you know. So if, if you're on the right, you look at people who then go out to protest or march, right, in, in the street, and you focus on the violent aspects of that people who are looting the stores, which is totally bad, totally wrong, should not happen, should be condemned, right? But that's not what a lot of, like we we had uh, people marching in Houston last year and we didn't have any issues in Houston. And some cities did, but we didn't in Houston. And then the same thing, it's like when you look at um, what happened in Washington, D.C. and you had groups of people storm the Capitol and there's violence, totally wrong, totally shouldn't happen. It's, it's, you know, but, but there on both, you had people who are gathering together to engage in what our country allows you to do, which is a, a, a right to speech, a right to gather, a right to say, don't agree with this. Yeah. And what I found <clears throat> that is really not helpful in our society is demonizing both sides for what is a way we have always been able to speak, uh, truth when we need to, when we feel marginalized, when we feel to speak out, to write that letter to the editor, to go stand in front of the courthouse, to go march down the street, to stand with brothers and sisters, no matter yes. what it is that, that, you, that you feel aggrieved about, to be able to gather and do that. But I think it's really important. And I pulled this stuff up when we were talking about today from Martin Luther King Jr. Now, I know a lot of people may not agree with me on this, but I believe that as you gather should always be nonviolent. I think, and, and Martin Luther King, who I've mm -hmm. read a lot in seminary, you know, he said nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. And when I think about John Lewis crossing um, the yeah. bridge yeah. Uh, um, in Selma, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think about uh, the the bus boycotts, or I think about these things, and where they were beaten, but they didn't fight back. Um, and look at the change that it led to. It led to necessary change. Yeah. It led to beneficial change. But these were people going back to the ways of Jesus, yeah. who are willing to lay their life down <clears throat> for the sheep. And I think it's time that privileged people stand in places with non-privileged people to lay their life down. No longer 
Is it, uh, and it feels to me at a point of moral repugnancy to watch folks that have been demonized for years and degraded in their very bodies to bear the brunt of that kind of violence. Mm -hmm. I think it's time for the church to be the church, to stand in solidarity with people that have been recipients of those violence and to receive that kind of violence themselves. So we can talk about King all day long and watch black and brown bodies get hosed and Mm -hmm. beat and degraded. It's, It's the white folks and the privileged folks and people that have credentials when they stand there that's when the shift happens and i think that's when some um maybe we could have some moral um kind of um sense of ourselves in the world i I was just struck by how much there is a a lack of understanding and a, a lack of understanding a lack of empathy a lack of humility from people who look at for and let's just be honest you know last summer where African-Americans are, are protesting, you know, uh, on the streets for what they believe and is, is just wrong and yeah. happening in society. And people pointing to the looters and saying, all of them are, you know, doing this. And, and it, you even hear it's the political talking points. And I just, I wish that we could have a more nuanced and deeper appreciation that there are the vast majority of people that are out there are, engaging in exactly what King was talking about. It's, it's a nonviolent direct action that is seeking to create a crisis, foster attention. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. refused to have armed security in his personal life. And when his house was bombed, he responded with compassion and forgiveness. And, you know, so I'm thinking when, when you are looking at people who are speaking out against things that are wrong. Racism is wrong. Um, injustice is wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, these are, would any evil or wicked powers, those are our baptismal vows, that That's we right. stand up and we abhor wickedness and evil in any form yeah. that they present themselves. And yet, I, think, I do think there is a way to where a lot of people in churches discount it, ignore it, or demonize it. Um, and try to create, and that, I guess, I don't even know what I'm trying to say other than it really disturbs me to hear a lot of people that I know um, describe a peaceful, nonviolent protest as, you know, something that it's not. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that don't believe in nonviolence yeah. who protest. Yeah. You know, they have a different, and, and Martin Luther King Jr. had to battle with that with people yeah. in his day that were trying to strive for the same civil rights and racial racial equity. Uh, and there were people that did not believe in nonviolence. Yeah. And there are people today that don't believe in nonviolence. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, as a Christian, I just feel like you you take the lashes, you take the stripes, you take what it is. But I, but I agree with you. I mean, it can't just be the people that are have yeah. always been on the receiving end. That's right, um, yeah. It was interesting last uh, um, last podcast we were able to interview um, Mark Labertant, who's uh, President Fuller, and one of the things he said that kind of caught my attention was that in the future we need to have our eyes on communities, particular Christian communities that have suffered um, um, great oppression but also experienced great joy. That that if we keep our eyes on those folks, they have a lot to teach us. And he kind of intimated that it's kind of black and brown communities, uh, Christian communities that that really do that well. And I think that within the future, um, um, 
the way that we can move forward is standing with our brothers and sisters in those places. Um, if we can't stand in those places in a sense in a, um, you know, um, say a, a protest or something. I'm not saying that's the only way to stand, but we can stand with them economically. I mean, there's there's black and brown kind of, or folks that are doing just amazing work in the city of Houston that are just hanging on by a thread that that we can we can resource, we can give, we can show up to, we can throw our lot in with. Mm-hmm. We can say, um, like Ruth and Naomi, your people are my people. <laughs> you know, yeah. and uh, I think there's something about the call of Jesus that begs us to do that, to move in toward, towards what um, Father Gregory Boyle calls a exquisite mutuality, right? That we, we, we're together and we say, oh, you're my brother and sister. And mm-hmm. this isn't um, my lots with you. Yeah. Well, I'm praying for Minneapolis, praying Amen. for our friend Greg Taylor. Yeah. Who's pastor in Minneapolis. Yeah. And... Uh, Well, I'm John Stevens. And I'm Matt Russell. And this is Pod Have Mercy.